Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Lower Town. Glad you're able to be here uh, with us today, and and um, yeah, looking forward to, to jumping into this. We're starting a new a new series, uh, which I am uh, very grateful for, uh, through the Book of Job. And it's not gonna we're not gonna spend a lot of time in it. Uh, it is 42 chapters worth of text, but. Um, there's a week where we're going to go chapters 4 through 37, so giddy up that week. Um, but uh, no, this is a, um, it, it, it's, this may sound weird, if you know anything about the book of Job, it's, it's probably my favorite book uh, in the Bible, um, and especially in the Old Testament, I can easily say that. And um, uh, matter of fact, it was the first sermon that I ever preached when I was 14, uh, was uh, from, from the book of Job. And, uh, and it's a heavy book. It's all about suffering. Uh, and, and what is that like? And, and that was right after my father had, had died from cancer. And it, and it uh, came from a broken and heavy heart, even as a kid, um, trying to teach and preach this text. I think the sermon was uh, like eight minutes long. Um, so it's not going to be that short this morning. Um, but uh, it, it is a heavy book. And so I don't know everyone's stories. I know some of your stories and, and backgrounds and, and current things that you're going through. And, and my, my hope is that this would actually give you hope, um, seeing uh, Job suffer. And so really who this book is for, um, that if you are afraid of God uh, and are waiting for him to punish you for your sin, then I think that what we're going to realize through the study of this book is that you don't really believe the gospel or know the God of the Bible. Or that if you think that God will bless you in this world for being a good person, then likewise, you don't really believe the gospel and you don't really know the God of the Bible. And if you think you're a good person and have no need of forgiveness of your sins, then again, you don't really understand the gospel and you don't know the God of the Bible and the depth of your own sin. And this is true of me. This is true of me on, on a moment-to-moment on a -moment basis in my life in the sense that there are times where I don't believe the gospel. There's, there's moments of my life where I think, God, you owe me. Look at all that I'm doing for you. I deserve this. I've earned this. I don't understand, and I don't really actually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in those moments. That if I think in, in, the, in a moment of sin and weakness that, that God, you, you, you should punish me, I don't really understand the gospel. And so my prayer is that through the teaching of this book, through the book of Job, through God's word, that our, mine included, my knowledge, our knowledge of who God is would increase, our comprehension of our own sinfulness would be understood in the depth and height and length and width of the love that God has for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel would be fully grasped. And so that is where we are going over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, this uh, sermon today is my servant Job, and we're starting, uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter. It's not a huge chapter, uh, but we're going we're gonna to go through it just little by, by little, kind of there's three kind of major sections that we see in the story. Um, so on, on the outset, I want to bring this up. So um, there's a, uh, um, what do you, I don't know you call it, a graphic novel maybe, or uh, um, anyways, John Piper wrote a, a poem that uh, he is a pastor from, from downtown Minneapolis, um, Bethlehem Baptist Church, and, and he would uh, routinely uh, write these very long poems as a kind of a gift to his church. Um, 
I, I may give you a gift at some point in your life here, but it probably won't be in, in poem uh, form. Uh, but but, but uh, uh, Pastor John uh, wrote this poem, and it's fantastic. And so long story short, my brother um, used to be a uh, marketing manager for a bunch of artists. And one of the artists' name was Chris Coley, uh, who was a friend of mine. I went to high school in, in college with him for a little bit. He did all the artwork for it. So periodically, I'm going to be throwing some artwork up there. But it's, they, they turned it into a, uh, a film. It's like a 50-minute long film where John uh, reads the poem while the art is, uh, I don't know what you call it, animated? Is that? But it's not like a cartoon. It, it, it's this kind of art. It's... It's very good. I, I enjoy it. So anyways, I'm thinking sometime after Easter, which is going to be here before we know it, um, that we'll, we'll do a showing of that some, some weeknight. Um, and I've already had, already have it purchased. And, and I, and I talked to Chris, the artist, and he said, I can do whatever I want with it. So, um, that's what we're going to do. All right. So here's where we're going with this series. And so, uh, this week looking at Job one, my servant Job, and the next week, Job two, one through 10, shall we accept good and not trouble? Uh, Third week, Job 2, 11 through 3, 26, the poetry of pain. And then 4 and 5 are both going to be Job 4 through 37, but in, in misunderstandings of suffering. And then how to develop a demanding spirit. And then finally, Job 38 through 42, uh, some of my favorite uh, chapters in all of the Bible. Um, we'll be looking at the answer that is given to Job. What is the reason for suffering in Job's life? And so uh, that's where we're going to be going specifically. However, Within this book, there's going to be questions that are going to pop up into your minds that you're going to say, well, what, what about that? You just kind of seem to just talk about that and glance over that. So I want to spend three weeks specifically answering some of these questions uh, more robustly. And so we're going to be looking at who is Satan and specifically talking about angels and demons within that one. I put a gap there to remind myself because then that's, then there's Easter. And so if people come here on a Sunday morning for Easter and the next week we're talking about what's, what's up with evil? Where's the problem of evil? How, how can God be good and evil be in the world? Um, that's a question that needs to be answered though. Um, and so, uh, anyways, we'll, we'll spend a week talking about that. And then the third one will be, how do I help those who are suffering? My, myself included, how do, how do I deal with suffering personally? And how do I help walk people through suffering? And, uh, so that, that's where it's going to be. So, so if a question pops up in your head, that's good. Just bury it. And hopefully it'll be answered when we, when we get to these, um, these, uh, sermons. All right. So the, the, where we're going to start is who, who is Job? Uh, it's not job. It, it is Job. And um, I always think of Mission Impossible 1, the, the, the first one, it's one, it's the first one, right? Um, where uh, he has to open up the, it's, it's job, there's a, it says, he, he keeps reading it, job 326, job 326, what is job 326? And then he finds a Bible, oh, it's Job. Um, and so it, it, is, it is indeed Job. Um, they're supposed to be a little squiggly over the top, but it was annoying to have to keep doing that. And so I stopped. So um, it, it, is, it is Job. It is Job. It is Job. <laughs> That's probably going to happen a lot. And just give you a heads up. Um, so Job is actually one of the earliest books uh, written, uh, even within our, our timeline. So Job was, was most likely a uh, contemporary to Abraham. And so it's very possible that, that Job would have been helping build the Tower of Babel alongside of Abraham. Uh, and then God confuses the languages, and then Job uh, leaves and settles out in the land of Uz, which we're going we're gonna to talk about in a minute. 
But our Bible is not in chronological order. And so I know I've mentioned that before, but um, if it were in chronological order, it would actually almost make more sense to have Job first. Even though Genesis explains the creation and all those kinds of things, um, the, this, the timeline comes in about Genesis chapter 12. And so it's a very old book. The language is, is the oldest when, when it comes to that. But we don't have an exact date uh, on, this, on this book. Um, it's also the first book in our Bible that's poetry, and so it's almost in the middle of the Old Testament than it is closer to the beginning, because all of our poetry books are kind of jammed to middle. It's Job, and then Psalms, and then Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes, and so um, it's, that's kind of part of that. And within Hebrew poetry, it's not going to sound poetic the way that we would think of, of poetry with rhyme and meter and those kinds of things. Hebrew poetry is, is very different um, than us, and it, and it kind of gets lost within the English translation, but a lot of it within Hebrew is, is parallelism, and you'll see kind of contrasts and, and different things that are going on versus you know, it rhymes and all those different things. And um, so some of those things will, I think, will be obvious, the uh, two different things and, and things that are kind of in contrast with one another or whatever. Um, but but it is it is a, a poetry, book of poetry. A question that comes up a lot is, is Job, was Job a real man? Was this, is this a, a real story about a real historical figure? Um, we don't know. I don't know. I personally leaned that way. In the book of Nehemiah, he's listed in there with a few other individuals that were considered um, uh, very righteous individuals. And, and to me, I don't know why you would name somebody if they didn't actually exist. And, and so, um, but to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't really matter in this story. Is this a literal, actual representation of what's going on, or is it figurative speech of what is just true of all humanity? And I think that either way, when I look through it, uh, either lens and both lenses, it's true. It's good, and it's helpful. And so, um, and it's very well written. Uh, it's masterfully written in, in, in a sense that we'll, hopefully we'll we'll pick up on that. So, Job. The man, who is Job? What do we know about him? Well, it starts off in verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job, period. That's it. That's all that we, we get on him, which within uh, ancient literature, this is not how you introduce a patriarch. A patriarch is always listed with his genealogy and his pedigree and which tribe is he from and who is his dad and who is his grandfather. And it was always really important. And so here we have this all we're introduced is this land of us, which we don't know where that is. We have no idea where the land of us is. It's not to say that it's fictional or made up, that it's very possible. There's a lot of, just archaeology-wise, there's a lot of uh, nations and places and countries that are listed in the Bible that archaeologists mocked Scripture for for centuries and decades, and then they finally would discover it, and they go, oh, I guess the Bible was, was right uh, all along. So it's not to say that, that it doesn't exist, actually. It just means that it hasn't been found yet. Uh, and so the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. And so we don't have a genealogy. We don't have an age. We don't know when this is going on. All we have is this. And so it's just, again, this masterful writing in the sense of saying that Job represents all who suffer, that it's not just specifically an individual, although I think it is, but it means more than that as well. And so he represents all people who suffer. And then we're told that this man was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. 
There's a lot that could be said specifically about what does it mean to be, be blameless, that it's not saying he was perfect or without sin. This means that he did everything that he was supposed to as much as he, he knew and he was upright, that he feared God. And again, that's that poetry that we kind of get even from the book of, of Proverbs of the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And it's the same kind of language. And he shunned evil. He wanted nothing to do with anything that was, that was evil. In other words, what, what, what we're trying to, what the author is trying to do here is to say he was a very good man, that there was no one like him, that he was in good standing with his creator, with God. And so I want to take a second and just ask some questions and, and look at the specifics. What is this book all about? All right, that's who Job is, and, and, and we're going to be talking about suffering. I think that's pretty evident. What is this book all about? And so Job represents all who suffer, even those, or even especially those, who suffer for seemingly no reason at all. That they're just going along with life, and then all of a sudden, calamity, calamity, death, suffering, destruction. Why? That's what this book is for. And it has been, again, if this is one of the earliest books that we have, people have been asking this question for thousands of years. And I think Job, I think Job answers this, but more personally, I think this is really the heart of the book. Does Job worship God out of genuine love or because of God's blessing? Does he simply just love God because he's, He's got a good life, he's got a good family, he's, he's wealthy, he's prosperous, and, and man, that my God has given me all these things, he's blessing me. Or is it out of genuine love? That even if these things were all taken away, would I still love God? Because he is God. <laughs> and that's what this book is really getting at. Um, John Piper, the pastor whose poem I'll be uh, quoting periodically throughout here, he... Um, he was asked by a friend of mine, he was on a sabbatical, meaning that uh, every seven years or so, certain churches will give their pastor a, a summer off. And my friend asked him one day, he said, hey, um, what are you hoping to learn during your sabbatical? What are you hoping to gain in your time off? And his response was, I just need to know that when all of this, that is his ministry or his work, that when everything is taken away, because he wasn't doing ministry at the time, does John still love Jesus? Right? And, and, and that's what this book is about. That when I have nothing, do I still love Jesus? Do I still love God? So continuing on with who Job is, verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. All right, he, extremely wealthy. I know, like, man, I, if, I, if someone gave me 3,000 camels, I don't, I, do, I, don't, I don't want them, right? I don't know what to do with them. I don't know what's going on. But that's obviously not the case back then, um, that it was, it was extreme wealth. Because you got to think about all the, all the servants that he would have to employ to take care of all of these animals and, and the nation that he was part of. That he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Extreme wealth. And the wealthiest man of his time, at least in that region that we see. But there's a lot that he has, and, and that's what is being highlighted specifically here. That he loves God, he's upright, and... He's very wealthy. But is his wealth then the reason why he is such an upright and blameless man? So I want to look at Job the dad. Job as a father. 
starting in verse 4, it says, His sons used to hold feasts in their homes and their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. All right, and so this would be, a, a, this says specifically birthdays. So uh, sometimes I think you could read this as like they were just continually partying, right? Like, okay, that one's done, and then the next one takes off. Well, there's 10 birthdays, right? So, I mean, almost every month, right, they're throwing a week-long party, right? Um, and they had the wealth, and they're enjoying the wealth of their father to be able to do this. And they would just, and when the high, what's being hi- highlighted here is not that they like to party. It's that they really loved each other. It's that they were really, really close. I love my brother and my sister. I don't know if I'd want to party them, party with them for a week every month, right? I just, I don't think that's where I'm at. I hope they're not going to hear this sermon uh, recorded. I love you guys. Um, that's really the whole point of this, okay? Um, but then in verse 5, it says, And when a period of feasting had run its course, Joel would make arrangements for them to be purified. And early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. And it makes it almost seem like during these feasts, this was something he was doing daily. And it says that he, he does a burnt offering for each one of them. So 10 of these animals are being sacrificed, and a burnt offering means completely consumed that there's nothing left over after the offering that I might even be able to get a piece of. And remember, no law has been written. There is no the book of Leviticus. There's no understanding of the sacrificial system, any of that. Job simply knows his God and knows the stories that were told of, of Cain and Abel and their sacrifices that they needed to make and what was demanded of them. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. And, and I love here, how much does he care for his children that he does this almost daily, and he says, he thinks, perhaps my children. Like, just in case they sin. Right? That, that he loves his children enough to get up and to perform these sacrifices and act as a priest on their behalf, just in case my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He loved his children and he loved his God. So that's kind of the first scene, if you will. Now it's going gonna, it's gonna to change places. And now we're going to go into this heavenly courtroom. And I underline heavenly here because Job doesn't know that this is happening. We, as the audience, we get to see this, this image, this, this picture of what's actually happening, the conversation that's going to happen in heaven that Job has no clue about. He simply is just going along in his daily life, And we're introduced to this heavenly courtroom. We're going to be introduced to two people, the judge, God, Yahweh, the one who's in control, the one who deals the judgment, and the accuser, Satan, literally the one without law. We're going to be introduced to these two individuals right here in Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before Yahweh. All right, so... uh, Angel simply means messenger. And so it seems like in this courtroom setting, if you have the judge, you have God seated on his throne, that the angels, these messengers, are, are coming back to say, hey, this is what I did, this is what I've been doing, and, and what are my new orders, right? What, what, what do I do now? And it says, and Satan also came with them. And, and, and this has been, well, at least every commentary I read, is a sense of that he was an intruder in this, that he doesn't normally go to and from heaven 
to get orders or, or to do something, that he was an intruder in this scene, this heavenly scene, this courtroom. And Yahweh said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it, right? So, so Satan is, is roaming the earth, going back and forth all over it, seeking someone to devour. I'm throwing a New Testament verses into this, that he's here to trick, he's here to deceive, he's here to, to lie and to tempt people. That's his job. It's his sole piece of existence is simply to destroy as many people as he possibly can. And he says, this is what I've been doing. And then Yahweh God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, do, you, do you see what happened here? That in this story, right off the bat, Satan's saying, I'm looking for someone to destroy. That's what I've been up to. And God says, God brings up, have you considered my servant, Job. Right? Like if you, well, hey, Satan, I, while you're at it, have you looked at Job? Because I'm telling you right now, there's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. It's the second time that phrase is used, but the author said it before. Now it's actually God himself saying, this is true. I'm, I'm confirming, I'm affirming that what is said of him is true. And so uh, the joke uh, that I've been told and sometimes use myself is this is why I want to be the second most righteous man in all the earth. <laughs> God brings this up. God brings him up. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So here, this is the Hebrew poetry going back, that he's making these sacrifices. Job is making these sacrifices just in case his sons and daughters curse God in their hearts. And here Satan is saying, you strike everything that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so again, it's the purpose of this book. Job represents all who suffer, even those who suffer, especially those who suffer seemingly for no reason at all. And so we have to answer the question because God said it about Job that just because I'm good or upright doesn't mean that calamity won't come my way. This is an unfortunate, really bad theology that is being perpetuated in our culture right now and over the whole world. This idea, it's called prosperity wealth and prosperity gospel. That if I do something good for God, he will do it in return for me. That's called karma, and that's not what the Bible teaches. If I'm just good and upright, doesn't that mean that, that I'm cool, like we're good? No. That's what this book and what the rest of Scripture teaches. Jesus even said that if you follow me, calamity's going to come your way. Am I, am I pitching the sale to follow Jesus? Because that's what he's saying. And we say, well, doesn't it really seem fair? Look at Jesus, the only most upright person who's ever lived, and he was murdered by the people he came to save. This is what, this is what the gospel is all about. I already mentioned that. 
And Yahweh said to Satan, very well, right? So, so, so Satan says, destroy everything he has. Yahweh says, okay, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. When I hear this, when I hear this interaction, this exchange, I actually think of this old Aesop's fable where the north wind and the sun have a challenge. That they see a man on the earth and they say, he's got this cloak. Let's, let's see who can get the cloak off. And the north wind is like, no, man, I, I got this. I can, I can, I'm going to blow that cloak right off. And the sun's like, no, 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 you have no idea. I, I, I've got this. And so the north wind blows and blows and blows. And all it does is makes him grab his tunic and his coat even tighter because it's getting cold. And the sun just comes out and beams. And the guy goes, oh, I'm hot and takes his is that what's going on in this story? Because in my mind, as I was reading this again, I, I, I was struggling with this idea of why are they just taking this bet, making this wager on this poor soul? Well, that's not what's going on. This is not a fable between the north wind and the sun or between Satan and God. One of my favorite commentaries on this, John Hart Hartley says this, Confident of his servant Job, Yahweh accepted Satan's challenge. He granted Satan full power over Job's possessions, but not over Job's body. Many scholars speak of this transaction between Yahweh and Satan as a wager, but this is inaccurate. For no sum, of, no sum was set to be handed over to the winner. The single issue at stake was the motivation for Job's upright behavior and his fear of God. Satan functions as God's servant solely as an instrument in the testing. The authors hold or author holds to a pure monotheism wherein God is ultimately responsible for all that happens. Monotheism simply means one God. That he's saying it is not two gods, not God and Satan. It is simply God who is ultimately responsible, who is in complete control that he's sovereign over everything. He's in control of this, even when evil is present. And so we can say this phrase based on the book of Job, that this calamity that comes Job way, Job's way is allowed by God, but it's caused by Satan. That he is simply an instrument for the destruction. But yet, notice how Satan is the one that has to keep asking permission. Well, can, can I do this? Well, you needed to do this. And then God says, okay, I'll, I'll grant it to you. That Satan is on a, on a dog leash, that he was allowed to go so far, but no more. You can take everything, but don't touch him. Leave his own body alone. So allowed by God, caused by Satan. Is that true today? Is this still true today? Yes, it is. But this doesn't mean that every calamity that comes my way is a direct act of Satan against me. That if I get a flat tire, right, and all that pesky devil is getting at me again, that's not what that, that's not what that means. Could it be? Yeah. Could it be that maybe I'm on my way to do something and he's doing everything he can to pre present, prevent me from, from doing kingdom work? And so he says, hey, I'm going to give him a flat tire. I'm going to put a nail right in front of where he's supposed to be driving today. Boom, flat tire. He can't do what I'm trying to do. Is that possible? It's possible. But I think maybe a better way for us to understand this is that calamity, suffering is allowed by God, but it's caused by the result of sin or the consequent 
consequences of sin because we live in a fallen and broken world. It's a sinful, broken world. And so maybe I get a flat tire, right? So possibly, maybe you get a flat tire someone from someone driving an old uh, turquoise Jeep that is susceptible to rust as a result of the fall of mankind and sin entering the world. And it degraded just, just, a, a, just enough, a little bracket just enough that, that even though the Jeep still functions great, a piece falls off and that punctures your tire. That's a result of sin, right? I mean, did my, did my Jeep sin? No. But we live in a fallen, broken world and therefore rust and decay is a thing. And so therefore we are all susceptible to sin and the result of sin and the consequences of that, and our bodies and our minds are decaying. That this world is in decay, and so if somebody gets cancer or a calamity comes or they suddenly accidentally die, it may not be directly Satan's hand in that, but it for sure is in the hand of sin. Because we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. This is simply, simply the consequence of living in a world that is sinful. So what happens to Job? The suffering of the righteous, Job chapter 1, verse 13. says, one day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, they're having a good time, they're partying together. Verse 14, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing. And the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Picture this. And, and while he's still speaking, another messenger came up and said, The fire of God. And I don't know if it was from heaven or from hell, but it looks like it was from God. This lightning storm, or whatever it may be, fell from the heavens, and it burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. All of his wealth instantly gone. In verse 18, and while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, this is the part of the poem that, as I read this poem and the poem that Pastor John wrote, the phrase here, as Job asked the servant to speak, the servant says, I fear to tell you what you might die to hear. You ever been there? You ever been there where you hear words that you cannot comprehend, that you cannot bear to hear? Unfortunately, there's this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says that God is faithful and that he won't give you anything more than you can bear. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But there are so many times in scripture and in our lives that we are given something or something happens to us that I cannot bear this. I can't. Have you been there? Because Job was. He says, your sons and daughters were fasting 
were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are dead. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up. He tore his robe, just a representation of mourning. He shaves his head. And they fell to the ground in worship, in worship. And said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. And so Job suffers in a way that I can't even begin to imagine that if I lost everything the way that Job did, I I don't think I'd respond this way. That's me, being honest. I would struggle. And yet, the beautiful thing about our story is that it doesn't end here. It actually ends a couple thousand years from this time that we see the actual suffering of the righteous one. In Romans 3.10, it says that no one is righteous. None is righteous. No, no one. No one seeks after God. That's of you and me. Nobody. That we've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. But God, in his great love, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The only really true righteous one died for our sin and he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love this image here that, that my buddy Chris wrote. This, or Drew, it has nothing to do with the book of Job, but just the blood painted on the mantles and the doorposts and God there with the serpent around him and he's hugging Adam and Eve, this whole result of the fall and there is now bloodshed there wearing sacrificial animals' skins. That as bloody and as bad as this is, Jesus is going to stand on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. That when I'm in my suffering and my calamity and I say, I cannot bear it, Jesus says, I already did. I already did. And you can look to me and I will help you. I know what it's like to suffer, that we don't have a great high priest who doesn't know what it's like to suffer calamity and betrayal and death and decay. He knows, he sees, he hears our issues, our problems. And he says, look to me. This is the end of kind of the first section of the poem written by John Piper. He says, and now come broken to the cross where Christ embraced all human loss. And let us bow before the throne of God who gives and takes his own and promises whatever toll he takes to satisfy our soul. Come, learn the lesson of the rod, the treasure that we have in God. He is not poor nor much enticed who loses everything but Christ. And if everything were to be taken away, would I still love God? Would I still love Jesus? We sing a song every week by Charlotte Elliott, not every week, very often, called Thy Will Be Done. And I get choked up when I sing this because I don't want it to happen. (laughs) Though thou hast called me to resign, what most I prized was never mine. 
but I have yielded thee what is thine. Thy will be done. That if it were to happen to me what happened to Job, that which I prize most, would I be able to actually look my heavenly father in the face and say, it was never mine. Thy will be done. Naked I came into this world. Naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says this. We can rest contentedly in our sins, in our own stupidities, and everyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. Right? So we, we see someone in their, their glutton or in their joy and their wealth, and, and we can ignore it in pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But the beautiful thing about scriptures and, and these worldview questions, that we're going to look at the problem of evil and suffering and all these different things, it doesn't end there. And it doesn't just end with Jesus dying on the cross. It doesn't just end with him raising from the dead and all of us who are with him someday when he returns. Because when he does return, when this book actually ends in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no, uh, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. No more of that. And he said, write this down, John, for these words are trustworthy. And true. So in gospel application today, do you worship because you love God or because of his blessing? It's going to be introspective. It's going to, it's going to take some time to think about. Finally, in your times of suffering, do you turn to Jesus who suffered for you? Do we turn our eyes upon Jesus? We're going to take some time now to take communion We've got bread that represents his body that was broken for us, that his righteousness was imputed to us. The juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us, that God's wrath, the punishment that we deserved was being poured out onto Christ. He did that for us so that we don't have to. So come, learn the lesson of the rod the treasure that we have in God, he is not poor nor much enticed who loses everything but Christ. All we would ask is that when we take these elements that you'd be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower, we'd love for you to come and partake of this meal together. Here's a gluten-free option on this side and we do have the prayer team in the back. And if there's anything you want to be prayed about, something you're wrestling with, struggling with, whatever, feel free to go uh, be prayed for and pray with uh, the team in the back. And um, I do want to mention this. This is just one of those things that's always fun uh, when our worship team puts together the, the set for today. We're actually singing a song, an old song, old, uh, not an old hymn, but an old song from the, the mid-2000s of Blessed Be the Name. It's an old praise and worship. Oh, I keep saying old. It's not that old. 
praise and worship song. But the whole point of this song, it's a direct quote from this passage. And Andrew had no idea that this is what we're going to be talking about, but this is, this is it. So as we're partaking of these elements, we're going to be singing, blessed be your name. You give and you take away, blessed be your name. Can we say that? I hope that we can. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, blessed be your name. That whether in suffering or in joy, whether a time of good or a time of bad, a time of health and a time of wealth or a time of sickness and, and poverty, would we, every single one of us, look at our own hearts and say, do I love God because I'm doing okay? He's been really good to me. Or do I just love God regardless of my circumstances? God, I pray that you'd be honored. I pray you'd be glorified. I pray as we partake of this meal, as we sing this song, that it would become more real, it would become more full and in-depth and beautiful to be able to sing these words after we just write about the man who penned them and his calamity and his suffering. So God, now would you receive all honor and worship because you are worthy of praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.